The Thriving Over Surviving podcast is for informational and inspirational purposes and not meant to be medical advice. Please consult your physician for any medical issues you may be facing. The opinions expressed by guests and advertisers are their own and not necessarily the opinions of Thriving Over Surviving podcast. I couldn't dance, but I can visualize dancing. So I used to visualize dancing and just imagine what it would be like to be able to dance. Imagine what it would be like to be able to run and walk and do all these things, which I couldn't do. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Over Surviving podcast, where we discuss the ups and downs of our autoimmune diagnoses, but ultimately how we thrive in spite of it. I'm your host, Edie Sahesian. I was diagnosed in 2015 with multiple sclerosis. I've learned a lot about MS in myself over the past few years, but the most important thing I realize is that I am going to live my best life. MS and other autoimmune diseases tend to be a bit of a bummer if we let them. So why not battle back by finding our joy? Once in a while, that person comes along that you are just driven to. Well, my guest today is that person for me. This brave, resilient, and thriving woman has had MS for 20 years. She's a traveler, an avid reader, and runner, but it's her smile that draws me to her. I'd like to welcome Kate Silverthorne to the show. Let's chat it up. Kate, how are you today? Hello, I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me. And what a, just a beautiful introduction. <laughs> well, it's all true. When I turned on my camera and saw Katie today, I saw that she was in a studio and and so we'll be talking about that in a little bit. But first, I'd like for you, if you wouldn't mind, to share your diagnosis story with us. So we have to go back in time to a pretty long time ago now. So we're going to go back about 18 years. Actually, it all started a little bit before then, but I wasn't diagnosed for several years after the original thing. So the original thing I had, I was 18. So that's 20 two years ago. <laughs> That's a really long time, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we're about the same age. And every time I'm like, 20 years ago, I can say that. I can say 20 years ago. It's scary. but <laughs> and, and I was still an adult. It's like, oh, moly, moly. <laughs> so anyway, it's <laughs> fine. Um, so yeah, so I was 18 when I originally had the first symptom. And that was actually in my right hand. And that was numbness in my right hand. And that hung around for about a week or two. And then it went away again. And then about six months later, I got it again. And then it went, to get, it went away again. And that was it. There was, I don't remember there being any other symptoms. I don't remember there being any pain. There was just desensitization and numbness in my right hand. And at the time, it was put down to a trapped nerve in my back, and I was told by the doctors it would um, resolve itself, which it did. So then you have to skip forward to when I was 23, and I'd gone through a very, very stressful time leading up to it. And I, you know, I broke, I'd had a boyfriend who was pretty horrible, and I'd broken up with him, and it was really stressful and really, like, really an unpleasant time. You know, it wasn't good. And I was, I was out, you know, kind of with my friends after I'd broken up with this boyfriend. I was out with my friends a lot. I was 23. It's what you do, right? You go out, you party and you drink and you just dance and you do lots of that sort of stuff. So I was having a lot of late nights and there was a lot of alcohol. Well, I, when I, I say, whenever I say there's a lot of alcohol, there actually isn't. It's just for me, there's a lot of alcohol because I'm not a natural drinker. <laughs> I don't really drink. I'd, even then, I didn't drink very much. And so any amount of alcohol was just like, oh, it's loads. <laughs> so it's really not. <laughs> so what I mean by that is I did more than sniff the cork of the <laughs> bottle of wine. <laughs> you know, it was just, you know, it was, it was consistent. You know, there'd be like, you know, we'd, be, we'd be partying two or three times a week. You know, that kind of idea, which for me, is tons because I don't do stuff like that. I never really have, and it's not, it's just not my thing. Anyway, at this point, it was my thing. And I I first off during that, I started to get tingling and numbness in my left foot, in my toes. And that moved over the course of, and to begin with, I kind of just ignored it. I thought, oh, it's probably my, that trap nerve again. Must be, must be the trap nerve. And I was very stressed and I wasn't really wasn't capable of paying attention properly to my body. I wasn't really in the right space. Anyway, so that that numbness in my toe, toes turned into my foot, turned into my ankle, my leg, my knee. And basically, over the course of a couple of weeks, it spread up my entire body till my entire left hand side of my body. Um, so half of my face, 
half, literally half of my neck, half of my, literally straight down the middle. I remember I would press down my body and I'd go, can feel it, can't feel it, can feel it, can't feel it. I'd be like, what is this, you know, going down? And then my arms, I was like, I, can, I can't feel it here. I can feel that. Yeah, I can. And doing that thing. I and mean, everybody does that. So you kind of get obsessed. But so over the course of a couple of weeks, it, every morning that I woke up, so I would go to bed with this numbness and every morning I woke up, it would be slightly worse until the point came where I had to call in sick to work because I said, I don't think I can actually walk properly. And lots of things came along with this. So it came along with um, pain. So the pain of touching the numbness, it actually stopped at my hand. So my fingers weren't affected on, on my left hand side, but apart from that, everything was. So it came with pain. It came with eventually debilitating fatigue once it had really started to take over, you know, really got to the whole of my body. The fatigue was pretty astronomical. I slept for, oh, I don't know, 20 hours a day at the worst of it. You know, you just sleep and sleep and sleep and you get up to go to the loo and you shuffle down the stairs to get food. And I would go down the stairs on my bottom because I didn't really have the energy to walk. I lived on my own. So it was, you know, it was, or I had lived with my boyfriend until I had thrown him out <laughs> a few months previously. So that's why I was, yeah, that's why I was living on my own because I had been with my boyfriend. And so then I wasn't any, and so that's, that's why I was by myself. And I was quite a long way from family. And this is before the internet in everybody's house. Like the internet did exist, but it wasn't, a thing that everybody had in their house. I mean, and I didn't. I didn't have a computer, so I had no access to the internet. I didn't actually even have a TV <laughs> at the time because I never watched much TV. I have a radio. What do you need a TV for? <laughs> so, which is why I never know what anybody looks like because <laughs> I don't. I don't watch the television. <laughs> yes, we were just about because I'm Armenian and I tell people how to say my name and I say it's like Kim Kardashian so we had a good laugh and then Katie revealed that she has no idea what Kim Kardashian looks like which is amazing I'm kind of envious of you Katie I've got a vague idea of what she looks like <laughs> but I couldn't pick her up in a lineup <laughs> I wouldn't know I wouldn't know who she is I have a vague notion but I'm so clueless and um, I remember many years ago and um, when I was at university actually so it was a long time ago and um, my friends were flicking through some sort of now or okay or hello or some sort of like glossy celebrity magazine and they were flicking through and I looked and I went who's that like I was looking and I went he's attractive and they all looked at me and like that's Brad Pitt oh my gosh <laughs> years previously in some random film <laughs> you are useless how can you not know I said I don't know I just forget and then they flicked through the magazine pointing at people going who's that I went, don't know who's that so I still don't know who's that I don't know <laughs> I, said, I don't like this test I don't know who these people are why do I need to know <laughs> so anyway, so I'm, I'm I'm absolutely hopeless anyway sorry we're um, digressing here but so um by diagnosis so fatigue and pain and balance issues came alongside it and I would fall over and stumble dropped foot that was fun as well and so there was lots of tripping and stumbling now I when I was in the worst of it or when I was sort of leading up to maybe not quite in the worst of it it was the same time that I would sort of ring work every day and I would ring them up and I would say I'm really sorry I can't come to work I don't know what's wrong with me but I can't walk and they were really nice and they said oh okay that's all right you get well soon type thing I said okay fine but I was so weak and I was so tired I didn't really know how what to do and I lived on my own and I was quite young and clueless <laughs> as I've demonstrated <laughs> and, and I didn't really know what to do and nobody there was nobody to ask what do I do and I think I I was too sick to really I was definitely too sick to advocate for myself I couldn't um, do anything to really get myself taken seriously so I did call the doctors called my GP and I said and I called spoke to the receptionist and I said I don't know what's wrong with me but I can't walk pro properly um, I need to see a doctor and she said well you can see one in three weeks time I said, I, I, I can't wait three weeks. I said, I can't, I can't go to the loo properly. And she said, well, that's all there is. And so I hung the phone up on her and then cried and then didn't have the energy to ever call again. <laughs> which like, seems, but I mean, it just, when I tell that story, I just think, oh, how can you have been so pathetic? But the thing is, I was so sick. I just couldn't. Now, of course, 
I would call an ambulance, which is what I should have done. <laughs> I'm thinking, how are you dealing with this? <laughs> yeah, I would call an ambulance and I would say, I cannot walk. <laughs> Please, can you send an ambulance? I wouldn't accept it. But I didn't, it didn't cross my mind at 23 that I could be really chronically sick. Mm -hmm. I just thought I had the flu. And it still sounds so stupid, but I just didn't understand. I didn't realize I had never come across this and there was nobody to ask. There was no access to information. So I couldn't Google what could be happening to me when I can't feel my feet. You know, and you'd get a gazillion answers now, but there wasn't that. The only way to get information was to go to the library. Well, I was too sick to go to the library. The doctor wouldn't help me. So all I could do was wait it out. And that's what I did. And so I waited. I didn't do anything for many months. I kept calling in sick to work and kept saying I'm too sick to work. And I just couldn't do anything. My savings just went down and down and down. And I had no money. My boiler broke that winter. Oh, God, it was awful. My boiler broke that winter. I've forgotten about that. My boiler broke that winter. <laughs> I didn't have any money to fix it. So I had to heat my house, turning on the gas from my oven to sit Stop. in my kitchen to stay warm. I was like, oh my God, it's insane. Why did I do this? But I just didn't know. And I was too sick to take command of the situation. And my my sister was very sick at the time as well. So she couldn't help me. And my I did phone him once to ask him um, to sort of say, I think you maybe need to come and pick me up. And like, I don't think I'm very well. I think you ought to come and pick me up. And he said, well, I can't pick you up. Can you get on a train? And I said, no, and hang up the phone. And I cried and I never called anybody again because I couldn't, I couldn't vocalize how sick I was. And so I was downplaying it to people that were important. And like, he didn't really understand. Nobody understood until afterwards how sick I'd been because I just couldn't even talk. It was only the people that saw me. So I had two friends who actually physically came to see me and they were like, oh my God, what is going, what do you need? I was like, I'd like some food, please. I'm really hungry because <laughs> there was no internet. There was no, there was no food deliveries. There was no internet. I had to walk down to my local supermarket and it took me about two hours to get there and drag myself. Like it was really awful. And I, when I look back, I just think, oh my God, that is insane. Like you just wouldn't happen now. It just would not happen. Mm -hmm. And I'm so pleased it wouldn't happen now because I would never want anybody to go through what I went through. But partly I, I very much hid it because, and so these two friends kept me alive basically. So they, they bought me food and they kept me alive through the worst of it. And I could go, so I could walk, but it was, it wasn't like I was utterly incapacitated. I had no feeling, but I wasn't numb. So it was desensitized. So it was lots of pain. Every time I took a step, it was very slow and labored and painful and my feet would drag and I'd walk down and I'd lean on walls because my balance was really bad. And, but I'd get there because there wasn't really any choice. Oh, and I used to use an umbrella, I think as well, because I didn't have a walking stick. And so oh. I think I used an umbrella. And also I would have been a, too ashamed to use a walking stick. Even if I'd had one, I wouldn't have used it because I would have just thought I'd gone mental. And, you know, so I think I did have an, a long umbrella and I think I used to use that as to have vague recollections of that. But lots of it, because I was so sick, lots of it is very fuzzy now. And it's a long time ago. So that was the beginning of it. And that went on. So the worst of it, I don't really know how long it went on for. It went on for a couple of months until I started to get better. And when I started to get better, I went, holy moly, I've been really ill. And at times I thought every, every night I would go to sleep and I'd think maybe I'll die in the night. Maybe I won't wake up in the morning. That might be quite good, actually, if I didn't wake up, because then I wouldn't have to deal with whatever was going on because I was so scared. I didn't understand what was going on and I didn't even know how to begin to process it or face it. Like I just couldn't. And so I remember thinking just kind of thinking I'm not going to kill myself because I'm not of that type of person but I wouldn't mind if I didn't wake up you know that might be quite good if I just passed away peacefully but I never did <laughs> which I'm quite pleased about I'm so, glad. You know, I'm so glad I didn't but I, I thought that many times and I used to lie in my bed and I'd watch the birds um like in the nests outside because I lived sort of um, at by woodlands and I would watch the birds flying from the nests and I would sort of watch them dancing and doing well they didn't dance but you know doing birdie things and I think gosh imagine being able to be so free as that and I used to just visualize what it would be like to fly and I just spent so much time inside my head just flying with the birds you know kind of and just <laughs> visualizing flying and you know, and then I, that visualization of flying started to, you know, why don't I visualize something that, my, that I could do? Why don't I dance in my, I couldn't dance, but 
thought I can visualize dancing. So I used to visualize dancing and just imagine what it would be like to be able to dance. Imagine what it'd be like to be able to run and walk and do all these things, which I couldn't do. Fall asleep and I'd wake up and then I'd stumble to the bathroom and it rinse and repeat. It just went round and round. But I spent a long time lying on my bed, watching the birds, watching the moon <laughs> and being lost in time. So that's why it's really hard for me to know how long it went on. But it was a long time until I started to get better. And when I started to get better, because relapses do that, right? So mm -hmm. you go through the worst of it and then you get better. Yes, I should have called the hospital and I should have been in hospital, but I wasn't. I got better and I started, it started to retreat. And then I could go, oh, gosh, I've been really ill. I think I ought to do something about this. This is not right. <laughs> I was like, this is not, this isn't because, normal. Because Katie, I'm sure your cognitive abilities were just so screwy. And, you know, it, it, the fatigue itself makes your brain not be able to function correctly, right? So your decision-making processes were probably off the charts bad. Absolutely flawed, like so, so completely. I, I needed somebody to just actually do it for me. There wasn't anybody to do it for me. There was my two friends who saw me, but, you know, they were young too. What are they going to do? You know, right. it's they're only in their mid-20s as well what, and one of them was younger than me one of them was a year old and one of them was a year young what are they going to do you're young and you're not very bright really <laughs> I mean I like to think actually I see so many young women on Instagram now and I just think Jesus you are so much more grown up than me <laughs> was... oh yeah a hundred percent they are so resourceful and I think about people that were diagnosed you know 40 50 years ago and how I I, I I think helpless is the word, right? You just don't know what to do. So people that are being diagnosed now in 2021, it's like, it's a totally different experience than when you were. Yeah, it is completely different. It is different. And I'm so pleased it's different because it sucked. So when I started to get better, I went, wow, this is not normal. So I phoned the doctor again, no, you can't have an appointment for three weeks. I was like, no, 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 this is not going to work. So I walked down to the doctor's surgery and I couldn't really have done that before. So I, I needed to actually physically go there. And I stood there and I said, I need to see a doctor. She said, you can't. And I just said, I have to see a doctor. I can't move my feet properly. My hand, like my arm doesn't lift properly. I can't stand up properly. And I was better than I had been because obviously cognitively I must have been better because I couldn't have done it before. And she said, no. And I stood there and I said, well, I'm just going to stand here until you let me see a doctor. And I just said, I'm just going to remain here. And then I cried. Crying is good. <laughs> you know, sometimes <laughs> it does open the doors to at least some degree of sympathy from this dragon <laughs> of, a, <laughs> of a receptionist who, whose job it appeared to be stop anybody ever seeing the doctor. <laughs> it's like, wow. <laughs> So anyway, eventually some I did see the doctor and he fair play to him. He took one look at me. He went, wow, OK, I'll make you an neurologist appointment. How long has this been going for? I went, a really long time. I've been really sick. And he was like, yep, I can see that, you know, kind of like, OK. So he made me a neurologist, neurologist appointment, which from that point on was four months away from where I was when I got the uh, when I got that. So by the time, <laughs> wow, by the time I got to that neurologist appointment, I was already, again, a hell of a lot better again. Mm. And then eventually I got an MRI, which was a couple of months after that. And then eventually I got diagnosed a couple of months after that because the NHS does not move quickly. Like, mm. you know, and unless you're almost dead, you know, kind of they're really good if you're almost dead or dying, but they're not very good if you're actually not critically ill at this moment in time. So waiting lists can be very, very long. And it was long. But, you know, by the time I got there, then, because I was better, I'd been able to research. Now, my uncle does, my uncle, but he's not by blood, actually has MS. So I did have some sort of vague understanding in my head about it. But he was an old man. Like, that can't be anything to do with me. I was just like, that's nothing, you know. And then I sort of went to the library and I read a few books and I went, oh, okay. It must be that. I was like, oh, there could be other things as well. And so I was kind of, by the time I finally got diagnosed, I'd done some research. And I also worked in a bookshop. So I went back to work and then I would hang out in the medical section. I'd be like, nee, nee, nee. <laughs> I was like, what do you think? Well, did you know? <laughs> like, it could be this, it could be that. I was like, and I kept, I did keep going back to MS and I thought, yeah. So when I was diagnosed, I was not even remotely surprised. Although I didn't really understand what it was. And I had heard of it. I knew what it was, but I didn't really understand what that meant for me. And 
when I was diagnosed, I still had dropped foot. I was very fatigued. I still had intermittent numbness in my left hand side, but you know, intermittent in the sense flaring, moving from one day to the next, you know, Mm. really kind of hourly, kind of almost hourly, just changing depending on how tired I was and real balance issues. Working was really difficult. I had, I did actually have to stop working. It wasn't, it didn't, it didn't work. I had to, I had to leave the bookshop. I couldn't do it because it was too physical. So Mm. it was lots of stairs, lots of books. It just was clearly wasn't going to work. I got an office job, but it was, you know, it was, I was still quite sick. And I remember asking the MS nurse after I was diagnosed, I said, okay, when am I going to get better? Because I've been ill for quite a long time now. She went, well, love, you're probably not going to get better. (laughs) I was like, no. I was like, oh, I was 24 by that point. So I was a bit, you know, still quite young. I was like, wow. Oh, okay. This is it, is it? She went, probably. Yeah, I was like, oh. And that was a lie, <laughs> just, to, just to clarify. That's a hard pill to swallow too. Like, right, yeah. I don't yeah. want this to be my life. But in fairness to them, at that time, there was basically, there was very few, there was one d- disease modifying treatment and it wasn't suitable for me for whatever reason, I can't remember. Oh. So that was it. There was nothing else. Go, go forth with your life and just figure it out. And so that's what I did because there was nothing else to do. I was like, oh, okay, that's it. I'll just go figure this out then, shall I? So then 20 years later, (laughs) I've been figuring it out for 20 years, but here we are 20 years later. (laughs) (laughs) So there's no DMT for you and there's no real research out there that talks about health and wellness and all of that. So what were your next steps in that? Like you said you changed your job. So I'm sure that was helpful. Yeah. So my next step, so I changed my job and I had been working full, I'd work, working full time in a bookshop. And so I couldn't do that anymore, but it didn't occur to me that I couldn't work full time. So I then worked full time in an office as a a recruitment consultant, which I was shoddy as heck at. I was so bad at it. It was unbelievably bad at it. I'm not good at sales. <laughs> recruitment, recruitment's all about sales, and I was so bad. Anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. So, I worked full time, and very quickly I started to realise that actually full time wasn't going to be viable at all. Mm. And so I then moved to part time in an office job. And that's hard because think of the money that you miss out when you suddenly go to part time. I was only young. I had stuff to do, you know, got houses to buy and traveling to do. But still, I was still really ill and I was still sick a lot. You know, so I found working in any kind of office environment really challenging. Hmm. Then at 25, I decided I would go traveling. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to do any of this. The only thing I want to do is go traveling. I don't, I'm not interested in careers. I'm not interested in getting married. I'm not interested in any of this stuff. I'm going to go traveling. So I bought a ticket, a sort of an around the world ticket with various different stops on it. I got insurance that covered me for everything except MS related problems because you, I couldn't, there was no, no insurance that I could have. And I thought, well, my dad had traveled loads and I traveled before I'd got sick. So I was kind of, you know, his rule was always make sure you've got enough money in your bank account at all times to get home. So I was like, that will be my insurance then. So I'll have enough money. I wasn't taking any medication. So it wasn't like I needed, a, needed to go and get hooked up to anything regularly. I was just like, well, I'll just go see what happens because I'm sick here. What's the difference between being sick here and being sick in India? I'll just sort it out, you know. And so, and really, that's what I did. And so I went to India. Wow. wow. <laughs> which, which seems a bit stupid um, retrospectively, but it wasn't. It was wonderful. And I went to India and then I went to Nepal and I went to Sri Lanka and I went to Singapore and Thailand and I went to New Zealand and Australia, Sweden and Denmark and France and Spain and Edinburgh, obviously Scotland. And I went to Italy and Germany and I went to a lot of places. So the house that I was living in in, on my own where I'd got really sick, I owned that house. So I bought it because I'd managed to buy it before um, house prices in the UK were beyond the average person. (laughs) I bought my house. And so what I did is I rented my house out because I didn't have a lot of money, but I did rent my house out. And my rent, rent was high, mortgages were low. So my rent covered my mortgage and it gave me enough money to travel very, 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 very cheaply. That's awesome though. I traveled on the most strung out shoestring you could imagine, which was brilliant. And the reason I had, I could buy a house in the first place because my mum had died when I was 16. So the deposit had come from that to buy the house, which is why I had a house. So I traveled till I was 28, 27, I think. So I traveled for two years. 
And then I went to university for two terms because I had run out of money and I really thought I really need to stop traveling now. So I went to university for two terms. And the reason I went there was because I did Chinese at university. <laughs> That's what you Two studied? Terms. Yeah. And I said, I was, again, I was absolutely shocking at it. And so the reason I did that is because I could do a year in China as part of my degree because I didn't want to stop traveling, but I kind of felt like I should probably do something a bit more sensible. But then my dad got really sick. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> uh, I was really, I wasn't very happy at university anyway, and I got very ill again, but I didn't know hence partying and alcohol but hang, hang on a second but let's go back to traveling because this is really really important so you ask what were my next steps what happened when I was traveling was simply the fact that I could do whatever I wanted whenever I wanted I was tired I could rest I felt good I could walk up mountains and I learned to listen to my body and that was the key that was the changing point I could go oh hang on a second this works really well for me or I'm tired today I'm just going to rest I'm going to stay here a bit longer I didn't travel fast so I went to a lot of places but I don't travel very quickly I traveled very slowly and I still don't move very quickly now I can't rush I hate rushing <laughs> I was like, don't rush me sorry I do not rush <laughs> I was like do not rush me so I, I move you know I, I move quite slowly and ponderously and I think I just learned to move with mindful attention and I was just I just learned to listen to my body and I realized when I started to listen to my body, if I rested before I needed to rest, that was the key thing. Mm. I didn't learn loads until much, much later. But that was the first thing was learning to rest. And so the transition out of traveling, because then I went to university and then my dad died, actually. And then I went traveling again. And then I met my husband when I was 28. By that point, I was thinking I kind of probably need to settle down into some sort of normal existence I don't think I can travel forever I don't think I want to do this forever so I'd been traveling I did go to university for a bit but I wasn't there very much and I came home and I went back and I was then off traveling again and doing all sorts of things and I met my husband he's really awesome one of the things that I loved about him was that he didn't like traveling <laughs> <laughs> what I wanted actually by that point is I wanted to stop but I didn't know how to I wanted to stop he doesn't like traveling it's not that he doesn't like traveling he does but he doesn't like he he's never really done it it's not been his thing he's quite a tall large man and he's not travel sized <laughs> everything he's too big for everything stick him on a plane and his knees are up here and you're like you're so stupidly big why are you so tall and I'm just sitting there going I'm really small <laughs> yeah I know you're tiny <laughs> like he just looks put him on a bus and he just looks like he fills the entire space I'm like you're so big you're weird <laughs> like, so he would have he would have hated all the 36 hour pig bus journeys through Nepal and he's just like why would you do such a thing I, I don't know I like to and I'm really small <laughs> so I, can, <laughs> I fit on buses near <laughs> you know but so it it just um, what it brought me was actually starting to live in a different world but I had to find a way to live in the way I'd live traveling in the real in the not the real world but the world that I wanted to then live on because I wanted to buy a house and get married have children I wanted to do that but I didn't want to do that with a travel a crazy traveling existence that I had and it was kind of wild and wonderful and I wouldn't change it but I didn't want to do it forever. And I knew that if I kept doing it, I was going to start to go a bit weird. <laughs> because you do, if you travel for if you travel for a really long time, you do start to get sort of not quite the same in reality as everybody else. And it's glorious, but it wasn't what I wanted forever. Anyway, so my husband, I met my husband around about the time my dad died. And then obviously really stressed, dad dies, grief, blah, you know, kind of MS symptoms all flare up and I felt really dreadful, blah, blah, all that kind of stuff that comes with it. But my husband just sort of, well, he wasn't my husband then, but he just said, come live with me and don't worry about anything for any amount of time, as long as it takes, just come live with me, leave your job because I was working and it was hideous and it was stressful and my dad had died. He said, just come live with me. Let me look after you just for a little while, just exist for a bit and just get yourself strong, get yourself through this grief. And fair play, this guy barely knew me. <laughs> it's like, it's, but he'd obviously decided that I was worth it. So, yeah, you know, he sounds he like a dream. Yeah, he was awesome. He was really cool. And he still is really awesome. And I did go to live with him after my dad died. And I did exactly that. And I didn't do it. I Six, eight, nine months didn't work, didn't do anything, you know, and it just, I just ate and slept and exercised. Mm. And so then I got to start to understand exercise makes me less fatigued. That's really interesting. Let's understand that a little bit more. So I did loads of exercise and I got really fit. And then I went back to work, but we realized it could only be part time. And so we were quite lucky because we've set our entire existence based on his wages. 
So we bought a house, we did everything just with one wage. And because I had been diagnosed so young and because I was diagnosed when he met me, we knew that my working abilities, certainly in an office, were up and down. Mm. I get sick a lot. Working in offices made me really ill because all those germs that go round and people sneezing on you all the time and forget about ms i would just and you get every disease under the sun mm. and the problem is you get a cold that somebody else might shrug off in a day or two it takes me weeks to get over and i just think you know and i would get sick and it was just this endless cycle of getting ill and then that went on for years we bought a house and that kind of went on until i had my daughter and my daughter is now in, to get pregnant so i was taking pregabalin so i was taking and amitriptyline as painkillers okay. because i was in a lot of pain on a lot of neurological pain on an ongoing basis i have to open my door it's very very hot in here for some reason okay just open the door there. Oh, all right. Oh, it's got very hot in here. And I don't know why it's so hot in here. Maybe my lamp is making it hotter. And the, you know, I was, I was taking pregabalin, taking amitriptyline, and you know, it was. I needed to come off the pregabalin to have a baby. You could, you could take it, I think, and have a baby. But the neurologist had advised that I didn't. And I thought, oh well, that's all right. I just stopped taking it. And so I tried to stop taking it, and I went, oh. I appear to be in a heck of a lot of pain. I thought, what am I going to do? I have to find another way to come off it because I've got to come off it in some way. So I came off it. I, I thought, oh, well, I'll try acupuncture. Lots of people rave about it and I'll try it. Mm -hmm. And my acupuncturist, so I saw her, I think I saw her once a week to begin. And then it went to twice a month for many, many years, many, many years. And with the acupuncture, I came off all the medication that I'd been on. And um, so all the pain when my fatigue increased exponentially, and my brain fog lifted as well, when all these things like when you're not in pain all the time, your brain doesn't feel so constantly adult. So that then so we've already got listening to my body. We've already got working part time. We've already got now we're starting to take away pain. We're starting to take brain fog and some of the fatigue. And we're getting fitter as well, all the time getting fitter. Now, of course, my fitness has gone up and down through the years because you have a flare up and then you get really unfit again. And then you've got to climb back up. It's constant up and down. Yeah. And it was very up and down through all of these years. Now, the things I was still doing in those times were drinking alcohol. Even if it wasn't very much, I was still drinking alcohol mm -hmm. and I was eating just a normal Western diet. Mm -hmm. And so after my daughter was born, I started my first business and um, I've had a few since then. But so I've been perpetually self-employed for years now. So I started my first business realizing that actually going back into an office environment with small charges wasn't going to work for me. There was no way it was going to work. So I needed to do something for myself. So then I needed, I did my, started my own business. And that worked really well because I realized I could be so much more flexible. I could do, I could work exactly, I can work at 10 o'clock at night. If I'm feeling it at 10 o'clock at night, I can do this at 10 o'clock at mm -hmm. night. Or I can sleep all day Tuesday if that's how it's going to be. And so that's what I did. And so I started to set up this life and combined with my husband, he works full time, but combined with him being very supportive of this choice to be self-employed and the ups and downs of being self-employed and all the rest of it he's never once said go get a job woman <laughs> earn more money <laughs> you know he's never he's never required that because we set our lives up so that we didn't need too much money right. <laughs> we don't spend very much you know you just kind of go well okay we'll just do what we can do and so then I was really busy with my work and I decided I make it sound like a drunk loads I really didn't I just it just that any alcohol what I have discovered is the worst toxic poison for my body imaginable so I gave up I gave up alcohol for I was already feeling quite good that's the thing so I was already loads of my fatigue had gone loads of my brain fog had gone I wasn't in very much pain I was I was feeling the best I had in years about six years ago that I would do dry January you know where you just give up alcohol because yes. we'd have a heavy heavy boozy Christmas mm -hmm. yeah so then I gave up alcohol and by the time I'd got halfway through January I was I feel amazing <laughs> <laughs> I was like wow <laughs> this is astronomical I was like do you think it's the alcohol maybe it's the alcohol and so I but even if it was just one gin on a weekend it's still enough to poison me so I was like Oh, that's really interesting. So then I didn't drink then until, I don't know, June or something like that. And I had a couple of gin and tonics with my sister. And for two weeks after, it was about 10 days after that, I was falling asleep at the table. I was like, oh my God, I'm so tired. I feel terrible. And like, I just had the hangover from hell for like 10 days. And then I felt normal again. I was like, 
I don't think I'm going to drink again. <laughs> and so then I stopped drinking. So that was that was six years ago. And then just keep rolling forward. And then slowly gluten has gone out the window as well. Mm-hmm. Gluten, I discovered, makes me feel ill. Mostly eat now a sort of a Wolves-esque style diet. But I do eat dairy, but actually I probably shouldn't. <laughs> so I'm just not quite prepared to I'm just not quite prepared to stop um stop dairy although my husband is stopping dairy for asthmatic reasons and I think yeah okay, it, it, it definitely <laughs> causes the inflammation for sure and yeah that's I feel like that's the hardest part of it because you get rid of all this other stuff especially if you like go out to eat it's hard to find things that don't have gluten but don't also have dairy it's like one or the other and then it's vegan and it's like well yeah but it's full of gluten it's like vegan gluten free stuff so you've been through so much and you've really accomplished a lot in your life what has been your proudest moment my proudest accomplishment that's a good question i'm really i am really proud of what I'm doing now actually I've because I've done loads I so I used to have a business where I made cage furniture for rats and ferrets <laughs> which you know I, as a sewing business and then I made keepsakes so I did lots of sewing but what I wanted to be what I've always wanted to be is a writer and a speaker oh that's that's what I want and so I'm just very proud of the fact that I was frightened you know like why should somebody like me who is just normal I'm ordinary I've got nothing special or important to say. Why on earth should anybody listen to what I have to say? And I'm really proud of the fact that I'm brave enough, (laughs) you know, and it's terrifying when you do it to begin with. But now I don't feel so scared. Now I see see validity in it. But to begin with, it was really frightening, definitely. And my audio and every audio book that I do, I just love them. (laughs) I I adore, I adore reading. I read so many books for pleasure. And now people give me books to read and they pay me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> isn't it lovely getting to do what you what you love to do and get paid for it oh it's just just blissful yeah I love it and so I'm just proud of the fact that I can even begin to imagine that that's what I do with my life you know it just seems crazy and like five years ago I would just go I'm gonna do that don't be ridiculous because <laughs> I was so different I could never have I could never have sat and done this podcast with you I couldn't have done it I'd have been too scared um I was just so different I was not shy exactly but lacking in the ability to speak my truth and to speak what I wanted to say I couldn't have done it so the fact I can do that in even any vague way just seems completely miraculous to be honest (laughs) (laughs) so I don't know if you know who this person is that I'm about to talk about but I'm going to mention it when I was young when I was in high school I raced home every day and watched Oprah Winfrey do you know who Oprah is okay I know who Oprah is. Even I know that. Win, win. That's a win. So she used to, you know, have her show every day and she had all these words of wisdom. And one time I remember her, I think it was her 60th birthday on the show. And she was talking about the stages of her life. And she said, you know, when I was in my 20s, I was eager and blah, blah, blah. And when I was in my 30s, I experienced this. And it wasn't until my 40s that I started to get to know myself and have less inhibition and be more about me and not outwardly, if that makes sense. And then, you know, her 50s and 60s, and she said she's the happiest she had her at her current age. And I'm like, no, I want to be that now. I want to be that person without inhibition. And so that never happened. Right. And so it's not until my 40s that I really have felt that and and been that confident person to be out there. So I can empathize with what you're saying. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard when you're young, because you're so worried about what everybody's doing and what everybody thinks of you. And then because I was sick through a lot of it as well, I was just like, I was so I was in this bubble of myself. And all it was was just about not being sick again. And the idea and I knew that I'd been through a lot. And I knew that there was lots of stuff to say. But I wasn't ready to say it yet. And it wasn't till so I wrote um, my first book about 2018, I think it was, came out in 2019. And that was a collaboration with, it was working those 25 stories um, in there from different women. And it wasn't till I wrote that. And I didn't know if I was going to do it. I was asked, I applied to do it, sort of saying, I think I'd like to do this. And I was like, oh God, do I want to do this? Do I want to actually talk about all this crazy no one will believe me 
Because it's like there's so much. Nobody's going to believe that all this has happened because it's crazy. And I was like, but maybe I'll just tell people. And it's just one small book. And then if it's really awful, I never have to do it again. But maybe if I do it, it might be all right. And I remember standing and I was looking at our dishwasher in our kitchen, just standing there, looking at this dishwasher. And my husband said to me, are you sure you want to do this? Because once you do this, once you tell everybody that you have MS, because I would hide it, I'd pretend it wasn't real, that nobody would know about it. You can't take it back. And I remember standing there going, yes, this is right. I was like, absolutely, this is the right thing to do. And my life, the moment I spoke that truth, I said, actually, I have MS and I'm still quite awesome. (laughs) The moment I spoke that, my life changed, like just not overnight, but things started to shift and change and develop and grow. So being brave enough to do all of that still fascinates me and I wish that lots of people more people would do it <laughs> you know it's it's a really interesting journey having the courage to be vulnerable in front of people is is scary but you know I'm so grateful that you have because we're learning so much from your story and your experiences so what brings you the most joy Katie it's really small things actually nothing very exciting walking the dog I love walking the dog with on my own or with my husband with my daughter. I do like walking the dog. I like building those stone towers, stones. Just I take photos on my Instagram. I just sit there and I build stone towers. I love it. Soaring up bits of wood. I love soaring up bits of wood and building things. Just small things. They don't even have to be terribly good. <laughs> just like, <laughs> oh, I'm a woman with a saw. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> I get really excited. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I love the stone towers and I was wondering what was behind that, but it must be very relaxing. And There's no purpose other than the fact you have to find the right stones and it's just a, it's just a process. You can't build a tower. It's just like life, right? You can't build a life with the wrong type of stones. You've got the wrong sort of foundations, the wrong sorts of stones. No matter how much you try, it's just going to fall over. So you look for the right size stones and it reminds me constantly of what's important. So I look for the right size stones and I look for the right shape and then I sit down and I just balance them one on top of the other and I just see how high I can go. And it just gives me a moment to just reflect on what's important. Am I using the right shape and size stones in my own life? Is this, is this planning across? And just a moment of that and it gives a moment of reflection. It gives me a lot of joy to do that. So very small and not very exciting things. But um, <laughs> I just internalizing what you're saying because yeah, you can't build a life with the wrong stones because it it will topple over for sure. And you know you go through those highs and lows, but finding all the right little pieces to get into the the best place that you can be. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and it's also okay to take your tower down and start again. That's the other thing. And it's the same with your life. It's okay to de- it's, it's okay to take everything down. Go, no, this is rubbish. I don't like it. And just build it up again. It's okay. You know, and we can do that as well with our lives. We can decide it's just not going to work. So let's do something else. I feel like you've on. had like three lives. Oh my God. And when you say, you know, you couldn't find the courage, the bravery to tell people and put it all out there. I have MS. This is me. But you were able to go and travel to all those places, which is wild to me because that's not something that's in my wheelhouse for sure. So to say, you know, you weren't brave in those spots and it was a different type of bravery around the MS, that's uh, a completely different and actually sort of laissez-faire approach to my own life. Like I've got some crazy stories from traveling, like through Nepal, up through the mountains, you know, traveling up through the mountains and through the foothills of the Himalaya and walking up this path. And I'd been walking for like five hours or something up through this path. And then there was a sign, like I knew I had to go, you know, right. And there was a sign there that said, do not go this way. Very many violent deaths and murders. And I looked at this sign. I was like, oh my God, it's five hours down the mountain. I was like, maybe they don't mean that way. (laughs) Maybe, maybe they don't mean that way. So I walked up the mountain and I thought, well, I've got a sharp stick. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and and I walked up. I walked up to the next village with my sharp stick, and I just what was my plan? I was going to poke a Maoist, I think, because it was Maoist insurgents, and it was all you know. There was lots of sort of civil wars and all the rest of it. Yeah. I said, I just poke him with a stick, and but you know, and I think because I was sick, and I I didn't have any dependents. Nobody really nobody relied on me, and it didn't matter. It, it going back, it didn't matter if I lived or died. It really didn't like. People would be sad, but they'd get over it, you know, like, and it wouldn't change their lives. And 
now it's completely different because I have people that need me and rely on me right there. And so I thought, well, I'll follow it. And it was just, I knew it would be fine. I couldn't really tell you. And of course, I didn't know it would be fine, but I felt like I knew it would be fine. And I was scared. (laughs) But I didn't want to walk five hours back down the mountain in the dark. So there wasn't an awful lot of choice. It makes me sound like I was tapped, but I wasn't. I was like, five hours on a darkening mountain or an hour up to the village that's that way. I think I'll just go to the village that's that way, which is where I need to get to. And hope I don't get, like, kidnapped. Right. Maimed or killed. Very many violent deaths and murders. I'm like, yeah, I'll be all right. (laughs) Wow, what an adventure. So through your many places that you've been, where is your favorite place in this world and what's its significance to you? A little hilltop um, live, which we call, lovingly called, well, there's two, actually. Can I give you two? And I'll give them quickly, I promise. One is the Woods of Engagement which is on a little hilltop near where we live, where my husband asked me to marry him. So it's just on, it's, it's just a, a hill with trees. It's lovely, but he asked me to marry him there. I love it, and I will always love it. And the other is another woods near to where we live, and which is we call the Woods of Enlightenment. And the reason that we call them the Woods of Enlightenment are because if anybody in the family has any problems of any description, doesn't matter how big or how small, we go to the woods and we walk in those woods until we sort that problem out and that is just the rule we go there and it's like we're not allowed to leave until we have a solution to our problem so it's not like you're sent off on your own unless you want to be on your own but you know we go and we talk and we walk and we talk whether as a whole family or just my husband and I or whoever it is and we sort our problems out so they are my two favorite places Woods of Enlightenment and the Woods of Engagement. <laughs> it is so healthy what you just said. Sickeningly healthy, right? <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's like, what is happening? But, you know, you sounds like you've gotten like all the clutter out of your life. Like all like that that stuff that we don't need, the Kim Kardashian stuff, right? And I think a lot of what you're saying is is about that, right? You're You're focused on what's important. And if you have things that are bothering you, you guys work it out. And that's so healthy. It's so fabulous. Now, I want to talk to you about, I know there's something very exciting going on in your life that you've applied for. So talk to us about this. It's really cool. So um, Ipsy, now I don't know what it stands for. And I'm really sorry. I keep, I should Google it and I know, but I can't remember what it stands for. Independent, professional, self-employed people or something like that. Okay. Um, Sort of a union of self-employed freelancing people in the UK and they so they have an awards every year various different awards and I applied for the wellness award so with my Instagram so this is not really like I'm a free I'm a freelancer I write about chronic like I would now call myself an advocate because I do write about chronic illness that gets published in the media I do podcasts you know my I have the Instagram my my aim is to help people that are further back on the journey from me to not feel so wretchedly alone as I was. And there's so many things that people can do to make their life vibrant whilst living a life of harmony with their chronic illness rather than one of war. And I think that took me a long time to get to. And I'm really seriously impressed when I speak to people who are at that stage really quickly. And I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. It took me like 20 years. (laughs) I was like, you're amazing. I am a much, much slower learner than that. But is to help people come through this and find this place of harmony, find this place of vibrancy where they feel it's not just okay, that life is wonderful and that you can embrace having your chronic illness. You can embrace all the things that go along with it because it sometimes really sucks. It's not like I don't live, I don't live um, symptom free now, mostly symptom free, but I don't live entirely symptom free. You know, I'm not, that's not what, I'm not really peddling a lifestyle of symptom freeness. <laughs> that's not really my thing. Mine is about getting your mindset sorted out so that when things go wrong, you, you're you resilient and you're floating and you're able to, able to move yourself forward. So I applied for this award, sort of just basically saying what I've just said there. And they said, yes, you've been shortlisted. I was like, <laughs> I've been shortlisted. What's really important to me is that things are free. And I already have a job. I don't need to make money. Like I don't I don't want to make money out of people who have probably have no money because they're chronically ill and they can't work properly. <laughs> so my mindset, I've been doing free mindset set workshops and um, looking mm-hmm. at various different aspects of the processes that I go through. Journaling, uh, creativity, 
and other things that I can't currently remember now. (laughs) (laughs) Even though I do them all the time and I talk about them all the time, my brain's gone blank. Other things. Well, one more thing that I know has to do with the award, which is the running, right? Like, tell us about that. How did that get started and your passion for it? Running, running about six years ago I think so it was after I first started to have acupuncture it's after I started after I stopped alcohol and I started to really move that spiral of health up and to really take control of everything like I had before but it had been sort of like up and down it had been I hadn't really been focusing and paying attention because I'd been hiding my MS in a hole and pretending it wasn't there Mm. but it wasn't until I really started to embrace it and truly understand what it meant to live with the chronic illness even though I'd lived with it all my life you know all my adult life until I brought it into the light that I could really start to understand what I needed to do and so after I went to acupuncture and then I started to get better and fitter and healthier and it's that upward spiral and so I started to run and so for the last five or six years I run on and off I, I love running but I haven't run consistently because what happens just like every most people I run and I do well and then I flare and then I stop running for a bit and then I have to start again and then I flare and And I would say now for the last couple of years I have really been in a much healthier state although I do still have weeks where I'm not so good I get because I'm fitter I get I get better faster Mm. and I they don't they're not so pronounced I don't have as many day-to-day symptoms as I did have and so the thing about running so I run a lot and so I've written an article for runner's world which is out at the moment if anybody wants to read it about running with MS and talking a lot about sort of neuroplasticity and how running I don't have dropped foot anymore I do trip occasionally but I mean who doesn't (laughs) (laughs) generally speaking I don't have I don't have dropped foot anymore and neuroplasticity and walking I walk a lot and then I could run because I could walk and just keep on doing it that motion over and over again has I'm has will have rewired my brain so that I'm more competent and more capable of doing it because it's found new pathways and so I've just got better and better and better at it I don't run very far and I don't run very fast I'm not I love it and I enjoy it and I'm free when I do it but I'm not looking for ultras and, you know, kind of iron women's and that kind of stuff. It's just not, it's not my bag. But I do like to be fit as I possibly can. (laughs) It's inspiring, especially now hearing your whole story and where you started from. I want everybody to know where they can find you in all of your wonderfulness because they're going to want to. So will you share that with us, please? Of course. So the easiest way to connect with me directly is on Instagram. So I'm ms underscore is underscore my underscore superpower which ms is my superpower on instagram and that's the easiest way to find me if you just want to send me a message and say hey hello can you help me you can also find me on my website which is katiesilverthorne.co.uk and on my website you can find me for voiceover stuff public speaking and writing. Well, this brave, resilient and thriving woman has shared with us a lot of things that can really motivate us and get us in that right mindset to tackle anything, I believe. Thank you, Katie, for being here with us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. (laughs) Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Thriving Over Surviving podcast. If you would like to join our growing community of thrivers, there are a lot of ways to do so. Visit the website at thrivingoversurvivingpodcast.com. There you'll find links to all our social media, my blog, and lots more. See you next time when we chat it up with another autoimmune warrior on the Thriving Over Surviving Podcast. Keep thriving. Keep thriving.